Sorry's a bit tangled there, tangled up there for a minute. It's good to see everybody tonight, and uh, we're glad that you're here. We hope that our study will be a benefit to you. As Brother Monty announced, we're, we're going to John chapter 2 tonight. Uh, I want to do a, just a small bit of recap. I don't want to do a lot of it, but I want to just remind you of some things we talked about in our introduction to John. Uh, we noted that in John's gospel, it's different than what we call the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John has only five references to the kingdom of God, uh, whereas Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are very heavy with teaching on the kingdom. In fact, the only uh, out of those five references in the book of John, three of them are in one verse. And so there's just not a lot of focus on the kingdom in John's gospel. Um, John's gospel is really focused on eternal life and that eternal life is in Christ Jesus. And where it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really focus on what Jesus did, John's gospel focuses on who Jesus is, that he is the light of life. He is the divine son of God. He is eternal. And so tonight we're going to continue with that theme, and that's going to be the theme throughout this entire gospel. And so in John chapter 2, we're going to have several signs that are given, uh, or not several signs, but they're things that are pertaining to the divinity of Christ and who Jesus is. And one of those will be uh, a miracle that we're going to start out with. We're going to have a little bit of geography tonight and a little bit of uh, of kind of talking through some of John's details as to why he gives us some of the details that he does, and I hope that'll be a benefit and interesting to you as well. John chapter 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So there's been a lot of speculation about what it means when it says the third day. Some uh, think that maybe that's three days after he's baptized. I disagree with that. I think that it's probably the third day being back from the time when he actually interacts with uh, Nathaniel. But regardless, there's a wedding in Cana. And it doesn't tell us who's at the wedding. It doesn't tell us uh, who the wedding's for. But we can assume from this that Mary apparently knew the bride and groom, or at least knew their family, as she received an invitation. And Jesus also received an invitation and his disciples. And understand, at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's not a lot of hype about Jesus. Most people don't know who Jesus is. He, in fact, we're going to read that here in a moment, that his time has not yet come. He hasn't made himself known to all the people in the region. But he's got a small following of disciples that he, that he ran into and, and made those disciples. We see that where John sort of, John the Baptist, transfers, if you will, his disciples to Jesus. And so these disciples also, they don't have a lot of familiarity with Jesus other than what John's told them. Uh, and just a little bit of interac interaction with Jesus. So I've got this map, map pulled up for a reason because I want us to understand where Cana is, where Capernaum is, because we're going to talk about that. And you might recall from last week, and I'm sorry, that yellow probably isn't showing up for you because it's not showing up for me back there. Uh, this is uh, kind of where the Jordan River is, and this is Anon and Salim. And what these two uh, places are, they're villages right here off of the Jordan River. This is where John the Baptist was baptizing. We learned that in actually John chapter 3, that that's where John decided to do his baptizing because there was a lot of water in that area. And so they travel up from where Jesus is baptized by John and where uh, J J Jesus is interacting with John, and they go all the way up here to Cana. That, that's a long distance. It's a pretty good ways up to Cana. But they go from there to Capernaum and then Bethsaida, which is the, the hometown of Peter and Andrew. We also read about that. And that's also where Nathaniel is from, uh, incidentally. So uh, that'll become more significant in a moment. But they're at Cana 
which is not far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And so let's talk about this wedding for a moment and this miracle that happens at this wedding. Now, there's been some speculation uh, from the wording that this is the first miracle that, ev- that Jesus ever performed while he was on the earth. Uh, I will tell you from the wording, I'm not certain that's a fact, but it really doesn't necessarily matter. We're going to look at that in a moment. But I do want to underst- us to understand this. This miracle is often overlooked, and I believe it is extremely significant. Extremely significant. I believe it's one of the greatest natural miracles, if you will, that is something that is regarding nature and physics and those things that Jesus, I don't mean that the miracle itself was natural. It was supernatural. But the way that he had control over nature, this one's incredible. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So at this wedding, Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Now, I guess that wouldn't be a concern for us, but you have to understand what weddings were like for the Jewish people. Uh, They had wine at their weddings. They had what was called the marriage feast, and that was a a typical custom that they had was to have a feast. And Mary's Mary's not the person in charge of wine here, okay? That don't... And, and also, I think she's really concerned about these people that are getting married, and this would be a great humiliation for them to run out of wine at this wedding feast because they're supposed to have enough wine for the, the feast. And so Mary brings us to Jesus, and Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? They don't have any wine. Well, what's that got to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. And this is why I say that Jesus is not going around showing who he is. He's not performing signs. And he tells Mary, look, my time's not yet. And so I think sometimes we might look at this and go, well, but then he performed the miracle. So even though he said my hour's not yet come, he just decided to ignore that and reveal himself to everybody. Not the case. It's actually not the case. Uh, If it was the case, John certainly doesn't tell us that that's what happened. So let's actually read the story and see what details John does give us. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, whether it was in the conversation or not, we don't know. But we don't hear Jesus agreeing to perform this miracle. But Mary says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, what's that got to do with me? My hour's not coming. She said, hey, do whatever he tells you. So, you know, maybe she's being a mom. I don't know. But whatever the case, Jesus decides to give them wine. Now my question is, how did Mary know? I mean, Jesus is not a, he's not a, a vine dresser. He's not a wine person, okay? He, he, he doesn't do that for a living. Why go to Jesus and say, they don't have any wine? Like it's his problem. She knows. And I don't know if she knows because she had seen him perform a miracle while they were at home, or maybe he had talked with her about the power that he had and what he was capable of doing. This is his mother after all. She knows he's the son of God. That's not a secret to her. But I'll tell you this, she knew he could take care of this problem. It may not seem like a problem. It was a problem to her. And he didn't dismiss her by going, look, it's not my problem they don't have any wine. They should have planned better. Or maybe they should have counted people and and figured out how much. I mean, as a restaurant person, that's what I'm thinking. Well, this is their problem. But Jesus says, go. And he says, fill these jars with water. Now, these jars, it says, were six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These were not pitchers, okay? Think half of a whiskey barrel. These are big, and there's six of them, 120 to 180 gallons. And Jesus says, fill them with water, and they filled them to the brim. They filled them to the brim. 
You reckon they knew what to expect? Or maybe they were just saying, well, Mary told us to do what he said, so let's do it. They don't know what's, they don't know what's about to happen. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. I want to pause right there before we finish our reading. Who's this guy, the master of the feast? Well, the word master is somewhat of a misnomer. Uh, at these wedding feasts, they'd have somebody that was in charge of entertainment, and he was in charge of making sure things ran smoothly. That's the person, the master of the feast. So why did Jesus not tell them, hey, go get, okay, now draw the wine out and go take it out to the party and tell everybody what I've done. No, he just says, draw out some wine and go take it to this one person. And they didn't tell him. They didn't tell him, hey, Jesus turned this water into wine. They just take it and this guy assumes that this was the plan all along. And so he calls the bridegroom and he says, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So get the gist of what he's saying. And if you look up the Greek in this, what he's saying is, usually when there's a lot of wine around, once people get inebriated, then you bring out the bad stuff because nobody cares. But here's what he's saying. You've done it backwards. You served this other wine first, and now you bring out the good stuff. Who's he thinks responsible for this? The groom. The people at the wedding don't know what Jesus has done. Who knew? Well, it tells us the servants that drew the water out knew. And I'll tell you, we can also know that his disciples knew because it tells us that this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Who knew? Well, we know for certain that the servants who drew the water out and the disciples knew what Jesus did. Now, let me ask you a question. Did they not believe in Jesus before this? They were his disciples. But you know why they believed Jesus? Because of what John had told them. Now it's different. <laughs> now they've seen something different. And let's think about what was different. Water to wine manifested his glory. Now you remember when Jesus spoke to the, to the sea and the sea was raging and the sea was calm and it was, you know, smooth? That's pretty incredible, isn't it? I mean, I think about being there and seeing that, how incredible that would be but have you ever been out on the water and the winds blowing really hard and the waves are crashing and the wind calms down and the sea gets calm I have you know that's not something that couldn't happen you know naturally now it certainly wasn't what happened when Jesus calmed the the, the waters that's not my point my point is this though there's never going to be a natural instance where water turns to wine they don't even have the same molecular structure Wine has a different texture, a different thickness. It's got sugar in it. It's got fermentation in it. It's made from grapes. There's no way, scientifically, you can take water and turn it into wine. Jesus changed the atoms of the liquid that were inside of the canisters. This was incredible, and they all knew it. The people that knew he did it must have marveled. How do you do that? I'll tell you why. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And that's why. Because he's God. He's not a man. He's not a scientist. He's not an alchemist. He's not a chemist. He's God. And God is not subject to nature. He's not subject to science. And he's not subject to limitations. God created everything from nothing. And he made wine from water. And his disciples believed. And his glory was made known to them. Now, this is the first of his signs. 
Uh, if you read this in, I believe it's the King James, it says the beginning of his miracles. And so I understand you read that, you go, well, this is the first miracle he ever performed. But, but this word sign doesn't just mean a miracle. It really means to make something known. This is the first time that someone saw Jesus perform a miracle. Now, maybe this was his first miracle. I don't know. I'm telling you, it really, that's not what really matters here. What matters is that Jesus is making himself known through his power, but only to a small group of people. But that's going to change. That's going to change. So from Cana, after this wedding, he goes down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers. Now, this is not in the text. I put this up there for, for our benefit, that brothers means kinsmen or close relatives. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, my mother's son or my father's son. It, it can mean brethren like close kinsmen. And so it mentions his mother, his brothers, his disciples all go with him to Capernaum. So they're following Jesus now, including Mary. Now, here's what's interesting about the way John writes and the way Luke writes in the book of Acts. They went down to Capernaum. So here's Capernaum. This is where they're at. Now, if I'm traveling and I go east, northeast, I would never say I'm going down to Capernaum. I would say I'm going over to Capernaum or up to Capernaum. But that's not the way these writers write. And there's a reason for that because they're not looking at this from north, south, west, and east. Cana is 984 feet above sea level and Capernaum is 986 feet below sea level. Sea level. They went down to Capernaum. They walked. If you're walking, it's a lot more important when you say up and down that you're going uphill or downhill than it is north and south. And we're going to see this several times in John's gospel where he makes these comments about going up to somewhere or down to somewhere. And I believe that adds to a lot to the validity of John making that walk himself, knowing where these places were, knowing the geography, the topography, if you will. And you notice Cana's up in the hills, but Capernaum's way down on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. John 12, uh, 2 and verse 13 says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, here we are again, but we're going up to Jerusalem. <laughs> now, they're at Capernaum, and they're going up to Jerusalem, which is like close to 100 miles or something, and they're going south. But if you notice, Jerusalem is up in the mountains. You might remember Nathan's lesson about Mount Moriah, which is right outside of Jerusalem. They're up in the mountains, so they go up to Jerusalem, and that's why they write that way. Now, here's something else that's interesting to me about the book of John, and I hope that you find this interesting too, because I think it's going to help us understand why John's gospel is different. Notice that John says, and the Jews pass over. Do you find that odd that he says the Jews pass over? You know, I guess I didn't find that very odd before, but, but after looking at some things, I, I do understand why that would say the Jews pass over. I mean, was there another Passover? You know, if I was writing to Jews... I would not say the Jews Passover because all I had to say was the Passover and they wouldn't know what I was talking about, right? But here's the thing about the usage of the word Jews. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's only used a total of 16 times in those three Gospels. And out of those 16 times, 11 of those times is spoken by Pilate or the Romans at the death of Jesus. So only four times in the narrative does it actually talk about, or five times rather, in the narrative of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John does it make a reference to the Jews. But John, 69 times. Wonder why. Think about this. The absence of the kingdom, 
the focus on eternal life, the focus on flesh and deity, and every time he makes a reference to something like the Passover or the feasts of the Jews, he has to qualify that by attaching it to the Jews. Why? Because his audience is Gentile. That's why. You know, I I threw out there last time I spoke that there are some who speculate that maybe John's gospel was written later after the destruction of Jerusalem, and and maybe there's some validity to that. But, But there's really another more viable option here, and that's that John just wasn't directing his gospel to Jews. And so he had to qualify certain things. And why would he focus on the kingdom to a Gentile audience? They're not looking for the coming kingdom, but the Jews were looking for the coming kingdom. So there's a lot in John's gospel that if you look at it, you're looking at teachings that needed to go toward the Gentiles because they were the ones that were steeped in this doctrine of Gnosticism that was questioning Jesus' deity, questioning his humanity, and all those things like that. So John chapter 2.13, now let's read actually this in context. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. Let's just stop for a moment. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Uh, I don't believe this is chronologically written, by the way. Uh, You see this in all four Gospels, this particular story. It's it's unique in that way. It's in every Gospel. Uh, But it's later in his ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's not necessarily uh, concerned with writing chronologically as much as he is writing uh, subjectively or, or trying to write about topics Uh, and keep a theme thematically if you will and so John now is writing about Jesus going to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and what's he see well there are people selling things right we know this story don't we we know what's coming why what's going on here so Jesus walks in and he sees people selling ox and sheep and doves why are they selling ox and sheep and doves because these are the things that are for sacrificing what did the law say Did the law create some system of market for people to go buy sacrifices? No, it did not. You took of your own hurts. And I'll tell you what these people did. They created a convenience store religion for people to follow. But I'll tell you, it wasn't about convenience. These people right here, this isn't about convenience for them. It's a whole other deal. When he made a scourge, that means a whip of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I'll tell you one thing that, that really struck me here is that the disciples made a connection to Psalm 69 right here. It wasn't, Jesus didn't say, this is fulfilled. The, no, they made a connection. They remembered They remembered the words of the psalmist when he said, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up when they watched Jesus come into the house of God and become angry. And he was angry. He was angry. You know, I've heard people say, What would Jesus do? Well, making a whip and chasing people is not out of the question. Understand something here. Jesus is not losing his temper. He's not having to come apart. He's not losing control. He is God. He is the divine son of God and he's come into the house of God and he's seen people dishonoring God in irreverence for their own filthy gain and he is upset. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you think God's any less upset today when man does the same thing? You know what Jesus said? Look at Luke 19, another parallel to this. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. What was God's house for? For people to come 
and draw close to God. It wasn't for people's entertainment. It wasn't for people's gain, the worldly gain. It wasn't so you could come and check off your boxes and obey God without your heart being in it. And that's what was happening with all these people. They came in, they bought their sacrifices, they made their sacrifices, they went home. They ignored the intent of the law. And Jesus was upset. Second Peter 2, 3 says this of false prophets. He said, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Understand this, God is not mocked. And people that make merchandise of God's people, they're not going to get away with it. And God is not happy. I believe God is just as angry today when we turn his house from a house of prayer, a house of worship, a house of holiness into a house of merchandise. Galatians 1 and 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. Understand what Paul is saying here is that our focus, while the mission, the heart of the mission, as Brother Rusty talked about, is people. We're supposed to be trying to reach people with the gospel of Christ. I'll tell you what our mission is not, to please people. It's not our mission. It's not our mission. Our mission is not to turn people into consumers. And become a store for people. That's, that's not what's supposed to happen. It's not about making money. It's not the church's job to make money, to be a business. Today, this is the house of God. And I'm not talking about this building. I mean the church is the house of God. It is the place where God dwells. And Jesus teaches us a great lesson here. To not lose focus of what the church is. What the house of God actually is. Because it's not a place for fleshly fulfillment and gain. Second Corinthians 9 and 7 says, so let each one of us give just as he has decided in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You may be thinking, why are you saying that people are making people merchandise? You know, there's a guy that, that Toy and I know from Wellington, Texas, and uh, he was an incredible basketball player. And uh, he, he's a friend of Toya's more than he is mine. I know the guy, but he, she's talked with him a lot about religion and about church and things. And, and he got mad one day, and he, he sent her a message. He said, you know what just happened to me? He said, the church that I quit going to a year ago sent me a bill. And she said, what? He said, they sent me a tithing bill. They say I owe them $10,000. She says, well, what are you going to do? He said, I ain't paying that. <laughs> I wouldn't either. I'll tell you why. Because that's not what giving is about. If you ever get a bill from this church, come talk to the elders. <laughs> You're not going to get a bill. I tell you, these preachers stand up here, and all they do is they beg for money. I heard a brother say, Creflo dollar, more like cry for a dollar. It's all they ever talk about is money. Give us your money. Put money. God wants to bless you, but you've got to give him money. It's a den of robbers. They've made God's house into a house of merchandise. I'll tell you what giving's about. It's about love. It's about being cheerful. He says, you decide in your heart, and don't do it grudgingly. I'll tell you, if somebody's sending me a bill, I'm going to be a little grudging about that. He said, don't do it out of necessity. Do it because you're Christ's. Love one another as Christ loved you. Do it because you're a Christian, not because somebody tries to guilt you into believing that the gift of God, the grace of God, may be purchased with money. It cannot. It will not. And God is not mocked. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Whatever amount of money you put in a plate will have no bearing on your reward in heaven. 
Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can neglect the commands of God and not give. What I'm telling you is that doesn't purchase salvation. The blood of Jesus is the price that's paid to save us, not a monetary number. And anybody that tells you that, they frustrated the grace of God. This is what Jesus was running into. Men who had that mindset. We're going to exploit people's guilt and we're going to make money doing it. And Jesus was mad and he chased them out. Doesn't say he hit them. It says he chased them out. He was upset. You know what that was? A manifestation that he's the son of God. You say, how? I'll tell you why. Because when he came in, he didn't say, you've made the house of God. He said, my father's house, my father's house is a house of prayer. I'll tell you, the people that were there, they wondered why Jesus did this. And they asked him. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? You know what they're saying? You better prove that you've got the authority to do what you're doing. You know, that's what Moses did when he showed up to the people. He showed them signs. And they went, oh, let's follow Moses. Elijah was the same way. Moses, they're, they're going, okay, show us a sign. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will, three days I'll raise it up. Now, we all know that that's not what he means, right? He doesn't mean he's going to destroy the actual temple. But let's be fair. I mean, I'll read this and I go, how dense were these people? They, well, you're standing in the temple. And he says, destroy this temple. I mean, we'd all think he's talking about the temple, right? But he wasn't. And even his disciples didn't understand this at the moment. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. 46 years. And you'll raise it up in three days. You know, this is another common theme in the book of John that we're going to see. We're going to see people physically and carnally misunderstanding things that Jesus said because they had a spiritual application. Just think about it. We see it here. We see it in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus thinking he could be born a second time by coming out of his mother's womb. We see it in John chapter 6 where Jesus is telling the people there, I am the bread of life, I'm the bread of heaven. We see that over and over through the book of John. Why? Because these Gentiles are having trouble with figurative language. Because of the Gnostic roots that they had. And so here again, we've got this idea. These people are going, you're going to raise the temple up in three days. It took 46 years. And how many people were building it? Who knows? Lots. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This is the sign I'll give you. I'm going to rise from the dead. But he didn't tell them that. But notice verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. See, they didn't get it either. But then when he was raised from the dead, they went, oh, that's what he meant. That's what he was talking about. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 23. Now, when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, we talked about seven specific signs uh, that John talks about in his gospel. But there are also generic references like this where it just says signs. I mean, there, there's no specific mention of what he did. But again, what's happening here? They're starting to understand who Jesus is when they start seeing the signs. But th verse 24 is intriguing to me. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. You know, this is the same word here. This word, many believed in his name, is the same word as entrust. Same word. They entrusted to Jesus, but he did not entrust to them. What's that mean? The word is commit in other translations. He did not commit himself to them because he knew all people. You know what he knew? What they'd try to do to him. It wasn't his time. It was not his time. And what those people would have tried to do is they'd try to make him king. Others would have tried to kill him. There's a lot of things that would have happened 
if Jesus would have committed himself to the Jews in Jerusalem. But you notice we read through his ministry, most of his ministry was done around Galilee and not in the holy, the holy city, Jerusalem. So he didn't commit himself, and he did not need anyone to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Another sign of his deity. What other prophet do you ever read of that could look at you and know what was in you? Know what was in you. There's not one, because he's more than a prophet. He's the all-knowing divine son of God. He didn't need for people to come up and say, Jesus, this is my cousin, Philip. Let me tell you about Philip. Jesus say, no, you don't have to do that. I know who Philip is. I know Philip. That's why it blew Nathaniel's mind when Jesus looked at him and said, I saw you under the fig tree. I don't know what he was doing under the fig tree, by the way. But whatever he was doing under the fig tree, whether he was praying or he was crying or whatever he was doing, it got him. He went, wait, what? You saw me under the fig tree? You're the son of God. You know why? Because he knew nobody knew that. How could anybody know that? Jesus knew things nobody knew. I'll tell you, that's not changed. Jesus doesn't need somebody to testify about you either. He knows what's in you. You know, we can try to deceive people on this earth. We can play a part. We can be an actor. We can try to pretend to be something we're not. But Jesus, he knows what's in us. He knows what's in us. And I'll tell you what's not going to happen when we stand before him on the day of judgment. He's not going to call for witnesses. He's not going to say, Monty Joyner, would you tell me about Ian Jones? What do you think of Ian Jones? He's not going to do that. He's not going to ask me about Monty. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't need that. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, people fool people all the time. We'll lie, we'll misrepresent the truth, and people are none the wiser. We may do things in secret. We think nobody's ever going to know. They're never going to find out. Jesus knows. He knows if we're real, if we're true, or if we're just being a deceiver. He knows. He knows what's in us. Last scripture of the evening, 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. I'll tell you a frightening thought. is not that Jesus knows what I did, but he even knows why I did it. That must have been exhausting for him. Every person he encountered to know it was in them, know why they did what they did. Helps us understand why he had some of the conversations that he did, doesn't it? How many times do we read, and Jesus knowing their thoughts? Jesus knowing their thoughts said to them, why reason you in your hearts? Walking up to the young rich ruler who comes up and says, Master, what good things should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knows immediately that this man is a slave to money. He doesn't have to have the conversation. He knows his problem. He knows what's in you, and he knows what's in me. He is the Son of God. And the Son of God will be the one that we all stand before on the day of judgment. He'll be the one that judges. And he'll judge us by his word because all authority has been handed to the Son by the Father. Friends, tonight, if you don't know the Son, if you haven't been united with the Son, you need to be. You need to know Jesus Christ to not just claim him as Savior but claim him as Lord and to give your allegiance to him and surrender your life to him because he is the light of life. And he wants to forgive you and he wants to give you eternal life, but you've got to come to him. He's calling for you tonight. Come have a seat as we stand and we sing.